Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. From the skies above to the finely manicured blades of grass beneath their feet, today's guest knows how important it is to get the forecast right for the PGA Tour. We're sitting down with DTN's lead senior meteorologist, Stuart Williams, who has spent the last 20 years providing forecasts for the PGA Tour and its world-renowned golfers. While the players have their own game plan, Mother Nature sometimes has her own plan as well. We'll discover how a simple wind shift or a wilted blade of grass can make a huge impact on course conditions. Plus, when severe weather threatens, we'll get an inside look into the decision-making process that helps keep golfers and people safe. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. Stuart, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. You know, I, you know, I'm a golfer and I was certainly watching the Masters and, you know, I just want to First of all, uh, shout out anyone that was involved uh, in the weather decisions associated with the Masters Golf Tournament because I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and uh, I, I just wanted to get you on Weather Geeks to talk about the process by which a meteorologist works with the PGA Tour. And we're going to get, in, get into all of that on the on the podcast. But before we do that, Stuart, let me tell, tell the listeners a little bit about you. You've got a BS in Applied Science with an emphasis in meteorology from UNC Asheville. Uh, you were promoted to lead senior meteorologist at DTN, which stands for Data Transmission Network, in 2012. I found this interesting. Your first job was with a startup called Mobile Weather, or is it Mobile Weather? Uh, and you worked five tournaments uh, the first year. Is, is it Mobile, like in Alabama, or is it Mobile? Mobile, as being okay, Mobile, so yes. Mobile Weather. So want to hear all about that. You've 20 years experience as an on-site meteorologist, but before we go there, uh, I have to ask you something. I ask all of my guests, what inspired you to become a meteorologist? Well, me growing up in uh, North Carolina as a young man, I'd watch the local meteorologists on TV, and in the wintertime, they would say, uh, it's going to snow tomorrow. And of course, getting all excited as a kid that it's going to snow the next day, uh, you get up, and uh, you know how tricky weather is, especially in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Um, it, w- it didn't snow, and so uh, it made me mad. So I, I wanted to figure out why it didn't snow in Greensboro, North Carolina or Winston-Salem where I grew up. So, you know, that kind of got my passion into weather is, you know, I wanted to figure out why things didn't happen the, the way it's supposed to. So that that was my knowledge there. To uh, uh, Any any special um, weather experiences along the way growing up or even as an adult that just uh, kind of comes to mind as something that, that left an imprint on you or any favorite weather event that you recall? I think I think mainly for me, it was just getting excited about snow in the wintertime. You know, it doesn't happen very often where I, where I live. And so to get that one snowstorm or maybe twice, maybe in one winter, if you're lucky to get a good snow, um, that's really, you know, made me excited about weather. 
Yeah, I, have a, I, I grew up in the South as well here in Georgia. And so I, I certainly remember those uh, days wondering if we were going to have a snow day. And as you mentioned, it's really tricky, not only in the Piedmont, but just in the South in general, when we're talking about snow and where the rain snow line is going to be. You know, I, I guess we're somewhat of the same generation because these days, my kids, even if it snows, they have digital learning days. So they go to school online. So it's just a, a really interesting era. The, the day era of snow days for kids is almost gone. Uh, tell us a little bit about about your company, DTN. Uh, many people may not be familiar with this company. Tell us a little bit about it and how you got started there. Yeah, um, I, you know, when I when I got started at, at DTN, I was actually with Mobile Weather um, and uh, DTN had bought Mobile Weather's North American operations. And so then that's when I slid over to DTN. That was back in 2005 or the beginning of 2006, if I remember correctly. So Anyway, I know uh, DTN got it started. It's really big in agriculture, and um, that's kind of its grassroots. And, uh, you know, they used to have that satellite system that they would give to all the farmers that they could pay for because Internet wasn't uh, a big thing back back in the day. And so to get weather information to the farmers, they had this satellite system where they had a screen and a, and a little keypad and a, and a three-foot satellite dish. And they would pump weather information to to the farmers, so that was that was where uh, kind of beginnings of putting weather online, so to speak. And then, of course, the internet's progressed and everything. But you know, DTN not only agriculture, but they have a big fossil fuels division. Weather's a big uh, um, big part of that. You know, we do uh, aviation weather, DOT weather. We also do sports and rec, which I'm under. We do on-site events. And so, uh, you know, it's a it's a lot. Marine is big now, so we do a lot of marine. So, you know, it, it's a 24-7 weather operations. But, you know, they also do uh, weather systems. that We install weather stations across the world to help agriculture. And, you know, based on those weather stations, we can get all that data and have our own network and based on that, we can make our own forecast. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a big machine and getting bigger. Yeah. How many, how many meteorologists are with the company? Yeah, we have uh, I want to say I think we have 77 meteorologists now. Oh, and, wow. I wasn't expecting it to be that large. Well, you know, uh, not, not every one of those are uh, forecasters. Some of them are in management and sales and product development. So. You know, there's a lot of things that we have patents on, you know, for aviation and, and DOT and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of smart people that's uh, behind all this. You know, even our acting CEO is a meteorologist, Ron Schneider. So, you know, we have a lot of people in weather or meteorologists that have big roles in our company. Yeah, no, that that's really impressive. And uh, I think for Le- Weather Geeks listeners, I, it's always important to just see the full scope of where meteorology is. I think um, many people, and I know some of our students, tend to sort of see meteorologists on TV or with the National Weather Service or maybe with a company like a Delta Airlines or someone. But uh, one of the neat things about Weather Geeks is we get to expose the listeners to all types of meteorology and different nooks and crannies of society. Now, uh, we're talking with uh, lead senior meteorologist Stuart Williams of, uh, of DTN, uh, and he is helping with the PGA Tour and has been forecasting in this realm for some time. Now, your title says you are an on-site meteorologist. I, I mean, obviously, that we know what that sort of says, but what does it mean to be an on-site meteorologist, and why do you physically need to be there? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously in technology today, we can do a lot of what we call met watches where we have customers that we'll watch from the office in Minneapolis and help our customers that way. And they, if they have questions, they can call in or we can proactively call them. But to have a meteorologist at your event on site set up, well, obviously when you have to make decisions about weather or how it's going to impact your event, you know, you can come in and see me. I have two laptop computers. I have a electric field mill that I set up that measures the electrical charge in the atmosphere and helps warn us before that first lightning bolt's going to hit at the site or at the tournament. And so having all that technology at your fingertips, you know, I can show you, hey, this is the the radar. The, the storm is 25 miles away, moving 25 miles per hour. It's going to be here in one hour. And so being able to show what's moving at you and instead of trying to explain to somebody over the phone, um, I just think it makes the point easier to make what you're trying to explain to them what's going to happen. And so if they can see it physically and I can show it to you, it just makes the decision process so much easier. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, I, you know, being a professor at a university, I know that uh, oftentimes there are on-site meteorologists or, or emergency managers that are watching the weather for things like the University of Georgia football game or other SEC or major conference football games and other activities. You mentioned something, and I want to kind of pivot there a little bit because you mentioned sort of lightning, which is a significant hazard for outdoor sporting events. What do you follow? Do you use the similar criteria to say what college football or college athletics use where there's a lightning strike, you've got to wait uh, within a certain range or uh, radius, you have to wait a certain amount of time. What, what what are your guidelines there? Yeah, I mean, if we take a golf tournament, for example, every golf course is different. Some are more compact, some are spread out over several miles through neighborhoods. So there's different dynamics involved as far as trying to make the decision, you know, when do we stop and when when we are safe to go back out and play. So, you know, we have a kind of a guide rule that if lightning hits within 10 miles or inside of 10 miles, we're definitely going to stop. Um, Cause you know, we want to have enough time to get those spectators back to the buses and evacuated and get those players in for safety. But um, time is a lot of it also. So if, if we're in a golf course, that's very spread out. Well, it may take at least, 30 minutes or maybe a little longer to at least get those spectators to the buses. So we may actually do more time than we would distance as far as the lightning goes. So for us, depending on the each place, you know, we may stop 45 minutes ahead of time or an hour, depending on the situation, to give plenty of time to get those spectators uh, back to the buses. Yeah, so it's always about safety first. And I know the American Meteorological Society has, has recently reviewed some of its recommendations. Uh, I don't know that those have been released publicly yet, but in terms of guidance on lightning and outdoor events as well, talking with lead senior meteorologist Stuart Williams. Now, recently, I, I know people watch the Masters Tournament, and I know the PGA Championships are coming up soon as we are taping this. Uh, I, I thought the Masters was an excellent example of, of preemptively making a decision. I think 
all too often uh, for major events, uh, people make decisions based on hope and not planning. And weather forecasting is good enough now that we can make preemptive decisions and not hope that it won't rain or hope that it won't storm. Uh, Talk about sort of the preemptive role that you play in large events, uh, major impactful events like the Masters. Um, And I know you may not be able to talk about some of it in terms of it, because I know there's some sort of agreements that you have. But in general, for a large impactful event, what is your thinking? And when you start thinking about uh, decisions for those events? Well, you know, if it's if it's a Sundays are the big, big days. You know, every tournament wants to finish at six o'clock or whatever their finish time is. And um, this is their one week to shine. You know, they want to have live golf and so does television. Television's a big driver. That's big money involved. They have sponsors they deal with and advertisers. So, you know, it's, it's not it's not a small decision if we have the uh, conversation that we need to maybe try to consider playing early on a Sunday. And the only reason we really talk about it is um, a lot of these tournaments do not want to go to Monday. Obviously, the PGA Tour, they'll go to Monday if they have to. But really, you know, it costs a lot of money to come back on a Monday because now you got to bring security back. TV's got to come back. you got to bring volunteers back. you got to have food and all those things that cost a lot of money to go an extra day. So when we go, it's going to have to be a, a big significant event for us to even consider talking about, do we need to go early on Sunday? Most of the time it's because of severe weather or there's a very, very high chance there's going to be rain and thunderstorms. It's going to have a big impact during the afternoon and that will prevent us from finishing play on Sunday. So we have these conversations through the week but really the big conversation happens on a Saturday. So this decision to do this is made 24 hours before Sunday morning. So Saturday we have these conversations and the officials, the sponsors, they come in, TV is involved. Hey, if we're going to do this, um, you know, what's the likelihood we're going to get hit? And so, you know, this is where our expertise comes in. This is when we think this is going to happen. This is what time we think these storms are going to hit. And um, so based on what we tell them, they, they'll, they'll make the decision, the officials and, and the sponsors, if they want to play early that the next day to try to avoid the afternoon thunderstorm. So, you know, believe it or not, I mean, we have these conversations probably three or four times the whole year. Because in the summertime, if you, you know, we could go early every single weekend, avoid any kind of weather if we wanted to. But if it's a normal summertime day and it's a 30% chance for a pop-up thunderstorm, I mean, do we, you know, go early just because of a 30% chance of a thunderstorm? No. It's going to have to be a really high likelihood of a major impact to the tournament for us to decide to go early and play early. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with DTN's lead senior meteorologist, Stuart Williams. You can think of him as the PGA Tours meteorologist in a sense, because that's what he does. He's an on-site meteorologist, and uh, he's helping to keep people safe and players safe in terms of weather events. And we were just talking about the decision-making process uh, for major events like the Masters, and we have the PGA Championships coming up soon, so I'm sure you'll be involved there. Uh, do you, and this is something that just came to mind, uh, do you think much much about sort of the sort of the climatology of the locations where you see that tournaments are going, oh, with the Masters, we know it's at the same place every year. So you kind of understand what, what to expect there. You're talking about summertime and the 30% chance of uh, thunderstorms. But do you sort of have a feel for the courses and sort of the, the tendencies of the weather and climate in those uh, locations? Do you kind of consider that in your deliberations? Oh, yeah. You know, um, me having doing this, done this for over 20 some years, um, you know, we, the PGA tour has always had a schedule to where, you know, January we're in Hawaii and then we go to California and Arizona in February, March we're in Florida and then April we're in the deep South. And then we kind of work our way up a little bit northward. And then we're in Texas in May and then June, July and August, we go up to the Northeast and Midwest and so forth and Canada. And then we, work our way back down in the fall. So, you know, knowing where we're going for the whole year, you know, obviously when we go to California in February, that's their rainy season. And so if we went there in June or July, it would be totally different than when we're there in February. So, you know, working these events every single year, you pretty much learn what to look for. And if we go to a new place that we've never been to before, then a lot of times, you know, I'll ask the locals, Hey, uh, what kind of happens this time of year? Kind of give me a feedback of what you think the typical weather pattern is. And even the volunteers will tell you, hey, weather never comes from this direction. It always comes from this direction. Or if it comes from the south, it's a lot worse than if it comes from the north. So, you know, little tips like that kind of help us plan ahead. And then obviously us as meteorologists, we go to these places every single year. Well, we write a report each week. Um of things that happened, uh, things to look for typically in this topography, you know, a north wind does this, look out for the sea breeze here, that kind of thing. So if you have never been there before, we have documentation that a meteorologist can go look and say, oh, okay, this is what I need to look for when I go here. So we do have a good database as far as meteorology is concerned, things to look for. Now, now you are a meteorologist and you have a team of meteorologists. Let's geek out a little bit on the weather. What what are some of your forecasting and observational tools that are kind of in your toolkit? And do you have a favorite toy, if you will, that that really is your kind of go to, like an HRR model or the, e, the European, the GFS, or what what do you like to use? Oh well, we look at all those obviously, but you know, in, in the summertime convective pattern, obviously the H triple R is very useful because you know. As you know, when it's when it's on, it's very good and it and it's really accurate as far as helping us pin down where things are going to develop and move towards at a certain time. And you know, but we do look at the the NAM, the three K NAM, the the GFS, the the European model, and and uh, in house we can sector those to the southeast, or northeast, or if we're traveling internationally, you know, the GFS and the European model we. We can sector those to wherever we go with the PGA tour. So, 
you know, it's very nice for us to be able to have that at our fingertips to be able to make forecast and that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously, too, you know, we, we have that electric fill mill. We have an anemometer that's attached to that because wind is very important on the PGA Tour and any golf tournament. Wind plays a major role as far as how the golf course is set up. So if you have a strong wind in the player's face when they tee off, then they'll move those tee blocks up so the hole plays a little shorter. And if it's coming from behind them, they'll move those tee blocks back so the hole plays longer. So, you know, so all these, so wind is very important as far as the setup. If we're going to have rain that day, that plays a big role where that hole location is going to go on the green. So, you know, all those things have an impact in golf. So we, we try to be as accurate as we can. So we use any, everything that, to look at to make the most accurate forecast for them. Well, I, I just learned a couple of things new here, and I want to kind of follow up on those with a question. But before I do that, I, some of the listeners are enthusiasts that may not be familiar with some of our acronym soup. So you heard us mention the HRRR, the HRRR. That's a short-term weather model that typically runs in the sort of, you know, within 24 hours in, uh, time frame. A bit different from the GFS or the European model that you often hear meteorologists talk about, which are more large-scale, synoptic scale, several days in advance type models. This HRR model takes short-term information from radar and very detailed observations and can give us a, a really nice sort of zero to 20 hour or so prediction of the weather. Uh, and so really useful for the types of things that I could imagine Stuart is thinking about. But what re- really caught my ear just now in your answer is something that I didn't know. So you actually, there is strategic sort of changing of the sort of gaming philosophy, if you will, based on the weather in terms of, you know, adjusting the tees or, or, or hole placement based on expected rainfall. So I wanted to pivot there because I wanted to ask you uh, to share with the listeners the various ways other than severe weather sort of uh, 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 interrupting a match how does weather impact gameplay in a given tournament in general oh yeah most people don't realize the most subtle things that uh, most people wouldn't even think about as far as you know fog for example well who cares about fog well guess what it has a high impact on golf because when we tee off in the morning that little white ball you can't see it if it's foggy So if those players can't see the ball going down the fairway and they can't see halfway down the fairway, then obviously we can't play golf. So having a fog forecast is useful for the officials. So they're prepared to make some plans just in case we have to stop for a couple hours when we come in first thing in the morning on, let's say, the first round on a Thursday. Um, Like I said, wind has a major role. If if we're going to have really high winds, let's say wind gust of 30 to 35 and higher, well, they'll do uh, different things to the greens. Um, they maybe won't double cut them or roll them to make them real smooth. They may actually add more water to the green. So that ball, when it lands on the green and stops, it doesn't get blown off the green. Because you cannot play under the rules of golf. If you the ball moves, you put it back and it moves again because of the wind. Now we can't play golf. So They'll grow that grass a little bit taller on the greens. They'll slow them down. So hopefully it'll give it more grip. So wind is a very big crucial element as far as having an accurate forecast. Um, Frost, most people don't realize um, we do frost forecast also. The likelihood of having frost the next day because when we're in the desert in February or some of the fall events, especially late, you know, fog, fall, uh, frost is a possibility. So, you know, um, 
you don't want to step on the grass and kill the grass if it's frozen. So, you know, frost will delay us. So, you know, those are little things that most people don't realize that has an impact at, at golf tournaments. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, is in the weather business himself, and he was talking about even that some greens or some golf courses, they monitor the soil moisture conditions. And I think you alluded to this with wet wetting of the greens, but soil moisture uh, or the green moisture, if you will, impacts the, the pace of, of the putting on, on the green. So you're, you're right. There are some subtleties that people probably just don't think about. Oh, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, the tour has their own... Uh group of agronomists and you know they're they uh they work with the local superintendent at each golf course and uh we're kind of tied to the hip with those guys because you know weather plays a big role on how the golf course is going to play so the agronomists want to know et rates evapotranspiration if anybody's out there knows what that is but um you know we help them with et rates how much uh the humidity is and what the dew points are and how much moisture is in the air because that affects how the grass grows. And if they're expecting a lot of rain, they're going to change what they do. And all these agronomists too, they take moisture readings in the soil to see how dry the greens are and how much moisture they need to add to keep all those conditions, what the PGA tour wants the golf course to be. So it's amazing. Uh, just to, science alone, as far as growing grass and meteorology, how close everything works together. Yeah, this this really is enlightening. I, I, we're talking with Stuart Williams of the of DTN, who uh, makes forecasts for the PGA tours, meteorologist, and this is a real geek out. I mean, this is a it's, if you're if you're a golf enthusiast or a weather enthusiast, this podcast is essentially um, a, a, the best uh, case scenario for you. So hopefully, you you let others know about this if you've listened to us, because I mean, I'm a golfer and a meteorologist, and I'm learning all kinds of new things from Stuart. I want to ask you: Are there certain golf courses, just in your twenty plus years of experience, that just tend to have more weather issues? Um, yeah, I think, uh, there's, there's some that have a, you know, probably get a, a bad rap for weather, so to speak, you know, Pebble beach is one where we go in February and, uh, they could have definitely extremes. I mean, two years ago they had offshore flow, which was, it's a warm wind and, a, and it makes everything clear and beautiful in, in Florida, I mean, in, in California. So, you know, they had sunny and highs 80 degrees in February at Pebble beach. And it was a beautiful week. And then we go there this year and it's total opposite. It's, it's in the forties and fifties and it's raining sideways and they've had really high winds that knocked some scoreboards down the week before the tournament and did some damage to tents. So, you know, that's one of the places we go to that you kind of hope, hope for the best when you go, because, you know, those strong low pressure systems that slam into the West coast and in the wintertime, well, they pack a punch. So some of those, uh, California events. And then, um, you know, we, we, Florida, obviously we're in March, so it's not too bad in March. Um, but you know, we do go back, uh, late in the year and, you could have some weather there. So yeah, there's, there's some places we used to go to Denver, Colorado, and that was notorious for having dry thunderstorms every afternoon. And it's a total different way of thinking as far as forecasting me being on the East coast and Dr. Shepard, you'll appreciate this. You know, if we have dew points in the fifties and the air's dry and it's, it's comfortable to us, 
Well, we Absolutely. go to Den- we go to Denver, and we used to go to Denver in the summertime, probably July. If they get dew points, you know, forty to forty-five, they're screaming. It's humid today. It's humid, <laughs> and of course, all those storms blow up in in the Rockies there, and they roll off into the valley of where Denver is, and everything, and all kinds of lightning. So you know, it's just a total different way of thinking in meteorology how to forecast that, you know. 50 degree dew points in the east well nothing's going to happen to you know dew points at 35 to 40 and now oh, we're going to get thunderstorms so definitely uh it was a learning experience for me i can tell you that carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard talking with Stuart Williams of DTN. And we're talking all things meteorology, weather, golf, PGA Tour, just a fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us, Stuart. I wanted to, you know, one aspect of weather that is not necessarily telegenic, doesn't get a lot of coverage, but can be a problem. In fact, National Weather Service data suggests that Temperature extremes um, kill more people every year than any weather. It's more so than lightning and tornadoes and hurricanes. Now, your golfers on the PGA Tour play in some very hot conditions sometimes. Do you ever deal with just sort of heat and uh, parent temperature heat index related issues? Yeah, um, you know, uh, back in the day, this is back in the 90s and all that, you know, the caddies, everybody had to wear long pants. And so the caddies had long pants on. And they used to have these canvas caddy bibs that they would wear that were thick. And so they didn't breathe at all and they were very hot. So, you know, the, the PGA Tour and over the years and now lets the caddies wear shorts, you know, every day, which helps them, keeps them a little bit cooler. But the caddy bibs are a thinner fabric now that have holes in them and they're very breathable. So they're very lightweight. And so, you know, they've done a lot of things to to help the caddies out. And um, so, but there are kind of an unwritten rule in place that if we're going to have extreme heat and humidity and the heat index is going to be over 105 degrees, then um, they'll definitely let the caddies not wear those caddy bibs. They'll make them optional and things like that. So they'll put extra water out and power aid and those kind of things. So you know, the PGA Tour is pretty sensitive to it. And even the players, even though, you know, they're allowed to wear shorts now on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But when they play actual the tournament, they have to wear the long pants. But, you know, those players are weather savvy. They they know what they need to do to keep cool. And and uh, so, you know, it's definitely a uh, weather sensitive business. And so everybody's in tune to it. How much I, I have a colleague at the University of Georgia that does a lot of heat related work with uh, football teams at the high school and professional level. And he has been really advocating something called the wet bulb globe temperature because it he says it's a little bit more interesting and gets at not only the heat index related issues, but how the body responds to heat. Do you have any experience with wet bulb globe temperature? Or you, you still pretty much just use the heat index? Well, you know, believe it or not, um, over the last several years, 
we have a lot of universities as clients, you know, that use our online tools. You know, we have a, a product called Weather Century Online that has radar and lightning data and can send out alerts for lightning and that kind of thing and helps them make decisions. But uh, on there is wet, globe, wet bulb globe temperatures. And so I know the NCAA now uses that as their as their decision maker to, you know, to, to stop practices or change their practice times to maybe the mornings and that kind of thing. So it definitely is uh, getting uh, a bigger and more popular as far as making decisions to keep people safe from the heat. Yeah, no, it's something that I wasn't that familiar with myself until I, I talked to him and he, he just said it has a bit more sort of body physiological science and consideration to it. So I thought that was interesting. I want to I want to ask you this question, kind of a fun question here. Uh, are there any sort of forecasts that you recall being particularly challenging or surprising for you over your career? One that you were like, oop, got that one wrong or, oh, I was really proud of that one. I nailed it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, for us, like we talked earlier, as far as trying to make the decision to go two tees early on a Sunday and play early. Well, you know, when we make those decisions, we're looking at the latest data on that Saturday of what we think is going to happen. And as you know, sometimes we'll nail that and look like geniuses. And sometimes, (laughs) guess what? Maybe convection happened overnight and it left a more stable boundary layer. And maybe it left a lot of cloud cover that morning that prevented the atmosphere to heat up. And then as the cold front approaches in the afternoon, guess what? It doesn't do what you thought it was going to forecast the day before. So there are opportunities there. I mean, times many times where we went two tees early to to avoid the bad weather, that it really wasn't all that bad. Maybe they had a storm or two in the area, but it didn't hit the golf course where the day before it looked like, well, we're going to get a strong, severe line of storms that we're not going to miss. So, you know, <clears throat> it's very difficult for us you know, to nail every one of those because you know how weather is. It changes in 24 hours. It changes so quickly. So the small little things that you need to make that weather event, well, if one of the ingredients is missing, guess what? Now your forecast doesn't look as good as it did the day before. So, you know, it happens. But uh, for the most part, I'd, I'd say we get probably 98% of them correct. You know, we're never going to be 100%, but but I'm pretty proud of our trek record out there of, you know, getting most of the scenarios correct. Yeah. And, and you're, you're talking about something, Stuart, that I, I talk about a lot on social media and, and things that I write, which is that weather forecasts are actually pretty good. I mean, if you step back and look at the big picture, weather forecasting is quite accurate within a zero to five day, perhaps even out the seven day. It's just that people tend to remember the times that there's a miss and those are few and far between, but boy, when they happen, people hang on to them in the same way that, you know, on the PGA tour, uh, one of the golfers may be an outstanding uh, putter within four feet of the hole, but he might miss one that, you know, cost him him in the tournament and they'll be talking about that one for weeks. Uh, So I think we deal with that a little bit in weather. And the other thing that I would say is that 
you know, we deal with long-term sort of synoptic scale weather, and those are really, the patterns are fairly well predictable. But when you're dealing with the types of things I imagine you're dealing with, we're dealing with things at the, what we in meteorology call the convective scale or the, the mesoscale. And these things are happening at scales where sometimes the models just miss some of those processes or list, miss some of those stable layers left by rainfall the night before. So I, I think you're hitting on a very key point in, that we deal with in meteorology. Yeah, and also too, you know, the, the, like you said, the forecasts of, you know, the computer models, the things we look at, the tools we use every year, they get better and better and, you know, they make our job easier, but it's still an inexact science. It's, it's never going to be perfect. And when you have an atmosphere that's, you know, 60,000 feet up into the air, one little thing way up above is going to make a difference down here at the surface. So it definitely makes it more difficult for us sometimes to get it exactly right. But with the, with the forecast being so good and accurate now, I think everybody expects it to be 100% accurate every single go. time. And uh, guess what? It, it's still, it's not exact yet. And I don't know that it ever, ever will be. It won't because we're dealing with a nonlinear system, the atmosphere, uh, and we're solving equations and linearizing those in the computer model. So there's going to always be some error. But what I always say is name me any other profession where you get 95 to, uh, plus percent accuracy. I'll, I'll take that any day in any profession. And I think we're we, we're held to a different standard that perhaps than uh, some other folks that forecast the future, uh, you know, like in stocks and uh, sports and other things. So I, I, I want to just send kudos to you and your colleagues and all meteorologists out there, because I really push back on those notions that weather forecasts are inaccurate. Hey, are you a golfer yourself, by the way? You know, I, I used to play a lot more when I was younger. Um, you know, they say if you want to play golf, don't get in the golf business. So, you know, for me being at a golf course 28 weeks a year, when I get home, the last place I want to be is at a golf course. <laughs> and and plus, too, you know, my wife works during the week and so she's off on the weekends. So I like to spend the time with the family on the weekends. And then my buddies who do play golf, they're working during the week when I'm off. So, you know, I, I, I think I played once last year. Right. Yeah, I, I I enjoy playing too, but just my schedule. I just and family. I have two kid, teen, teen, preteen kids, and so they keep me busy. So I certainly understand that. Hey, any fun encounters with any players over the years in terms of them asking you for 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 personal forecast or any sort of specific weather stories uh, with any memorable players or people we might know? Oh yeah, I mean you know there, there's a lot of guys that live in Florida, and so a lot of them are fishermen. So. You know, they like to know what the winds are going to do on the east coast of Florida, so to speak. Hey, I'm going to go fishing next week. You know, what, what, how's that going to impact? What, what's the winds going to do? What the sea's going to do? So, yeah, there's some guys that really want to know what the weather is uh, for their off time. Or some of them go skiing in, in the winter. Hey, uh, how's it looking Colorado next week? So, yeah, some of those guys will ask personal forecasts, so to speak. You know, just kind of get an idea of what they're going to do and you know, Davis Love is a big fisherman and hunter and things like that. So we'll talk a little bit when he's out. And I, I want to give a shout out to 94.5 WPTI in Greensboro, which is where Stuart uh, Williams is coming to us from today uh, on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, you just uh, sort of provoked, uh, uh, invoked the thought in my mind. So the LPGA, the uh, uh, are they using the same types of weather procedures and frankly using you all in their, their processes as well? I imagine so. Absolutely. You know, uh, the LPGA, uh, we have a couple of guys. That I, I work, 
I'll work one or two of their events during the year to change things up. But yeah, we have a couple guys dedicated to their, their tour and, you know, they have the same issues as the PGA tour. They, they, um, you know, wind and rain and storms, they want to do the same thing and keep everybody safe that the PGA tour does. So, you know, they, they use a lot of the same protocols and, and, uh, you know, to, to say that each, and to be honest with you, each individual tournament has their own evacuation plan in place. So they have vans on, on all over the golf course and players are directed to go to those vans and they can bring them into the clubhouse and, both both uh, tours have LED boards that we put weather warning signs on. Say, hey, inclement weather's approaching. You know, severe storms approaching. Seek shelter immediately. Those kind of things. So, we, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities in both tours as far as getting the message out and keeping people safe. Got two final questions for you. I've really enjoyed this podcast with you, Stuart. So, thank you for coming on. Uh, two final questions. One. I'm, I mean, you all seem to figure this out. I mean, like I said, the AMS issued a statement last year with guidance on outdoor venues, public events and weather uh, because in that and I was actually involved in writing that. And one of the things we talked about is that we've got to move from this hope or wait and see mentality when we have large outdoor events. And the PGA and your company seem to have figured it out. Where do you think we as an enterprise, a weather enterprise are headed in this regard um, I can tell you just from our company standpoint, I mean, we did over 150 events last year. Um, 27 of those, I think were internationally like Asia and, you know, Mexico, wherever PGA tour goes and that kind of thing. So each year we keep adding more and more events. I mean, we're adding outdoor concerts. I mean, we do the Dublin Irish festival in Dublin, Ohio. That's a, one of the largest Irish festivals in North America and it's a three day event. And so more and more organizations and outdoor events are having to add a meteorologist to their event or at least a service where they can call and ask questions. You know, can we, are we going to be safe? What time do we need to stop? Those kind of things. So, you know, I, I see this part of the business continue to grow and expand because People like, you know, organizations like the National Weather Service, and I think they're working more with the private sector because I see it at events all the time. The Weather Service, you know, they'll reach out before, let's say, the big PGA championship next week. Um, Hey, we're going to be there on site. And so we would meet with them and say, hey, we have the golf course handled. You guys handled the public part of it, the the parking lots, the, the roads. So all of these things... I think are going to be adding more and more business to let's say DTN because, you know, we do so many events and I think the word's getting out now that, Hey, we, we probably need to get help with our event if we want to keep moving forward. Yeah. I, I see major league baseball games and other things. Well, I mean, I we still- do, I mean, uh, we, we are contracted with major league baseball. Um, they have a call in service and we have a dedicated meteorologist that watches all their, uh, you know, playoffs and World Series events and, um, you know, the, the, the all-star game, that kind of thing. The NFL, you know, we, we help them too with uh, their outdoor activities outside the Super Bowl because a lot of times it is a dome, so that doesn't really impact the game, but they're concerned about the outdoor festivities that they have. So 
more and more of these organizations are are getting weather help, and and it's definitely uh, satisfying and and very gratifying to me that that it's it's we just keep growing and growing, and and it's very uh, it's it's very awesome thing to see. Yeah, and, I, I, and the technology and the science is there that uh, that that organizations certainly should take advantage of uh, of the expertise of the meteorological community. Last question: as, as just in golf alone, you know, golf used to be the number one. Um, sport that had people killed by lightning. And it, guess what? If you've looked at the list lately, I don't know if you have, but it's down the list now. Golf is no longer number one. So I think uh, I had maybe a little bit of part uh, role for that. You know, all these golf courses and clubs have lightning systems now that blow horns to alert their membership that lightning's in the area. So I think golf has been the leader in this for 20 some years now and, and it's definitely gratifying and that was actually the question i was going to ask uh, what what was happening at some of the local clubs because you have a lot of golfers walking around with uh, with large metal sticks uh during severe weather <laughs> like i said you know we have our online stuff that a lot of clubs uh, uh belong to that text them and when lightning hits and whatever threshold they have it set you know, so if lightning gets within eight miles of their golf course, they get a text and they can pull their membership in. And there's a lot of lightning systems out there that have horns tied to them as well. So, you know, golf has definitely, I think, been a big leader in lightning safety. I think that's where we're going to have to end it. I've been talking with lead senior meteorologist at DTN, Stuart Williams, who forecasts for the PGA Tour. Stuart, is, is there a place that, where they can find you on social media, you or DTN? Yeah, I mean, uh, at DTN Weather, if you want to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And then um, I have a Facebook account, just Stuart Williams. You can find me there. And then uh, my Twitter account is at PGAWXMan1, the number one. So PGAWXMan1. Very good. Very good. This has been an amazing podcast, Stuart. I want to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shepard. It's, it's a pleasure and it's been an honor to talk to you. I've, I've been following you for a long time. Well, uh, thank you for those kind words and thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. And be sure to subscribe out there on iTunes at We Love Weather TV and or Stitcher, your other favorite podcast albums. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and this has been the Weather Geeks Podcast. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader